Uh, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to be transformed by you by it. We ask that your spirit will be free in every one of our hearts and every one of our lives to speak what you want us to hear today and to walk away changed in Jesus' name. Amen. So I teach my students when we, uh, when we hear things that sound like they're true, sound biblical, to not just assume that to be the case, but check it in the Word of God for yourself. And you know, one of the things that I hear, I've heard many times is when we look at the creation narrative, which is of course what we see in Genesis 1, is that you know, man is the epitome of God's creation, that, that everything that God was doing was for the purpose of creating man, and uh, Genesis 1 uh, indicates that. But when I look at Genesis 1, I can see how somebody could say, well, uh, if we're so important, then why did he make everything else before us? Why are we the last thing that he made? Uh, so, so somebody could say, maybe, maybe if we, he really thought we were more important, if we were superior to everything else that God made, then, then why didn't he make us first? So, okay, well, you know, it's, it, if you look at it, at the end of the chapter, you know, it, it tells us that it was very good. As he's creating everything, it was good, it was good, it was good. But after he makes man, behold, it was very good. So man must be superior. Yeah, maybe, but, but it's also possible that he's only talking about his creative work. It's very good because now he's finished. And then it was good because he was still in process. So again, are we sure that we are more important? Are we sure that we are superior to the other creatures that God has made? When we look at the text, something bothered me for, I mean, for a long time. And I think I've shared this with you before. But when you're creating things on six separate days, if you really want to make man to be superior to all the other creatures you've made, and if you want to make man special, why not give him his own day? You got, I mean, you got five other days to make everything else. If you make the birds and the fish on the fifth day, why not make the creatures that walk on the ground on the fifth day too? Then on the sixth day, God makes man out. That would say something. But he didn't do that. Now, I would think that if man really is superior, God missed an opportunity to show it. But we don't think that God missed anything. We think maybe that God was trying to say something else. There cannot be uh, a, a randomness to what God did. Everything he does is for a purpose. And it's because, I think, we assume our superiority and our uh, super importantness, which I will, you know, we'll get there, but I'll defend that. But the problem is we sometimes think we're too special, too important. Sometimes we think too highly of ourselves, and Paul has to tell us not to do that. And we don't realize that, you know what, in many ways we really are no different, no better, and not superior than the animals that walk the ground. And that is why we are created on the same day that they are. When you look at the text, there's only one thing that tells us that we are, in fact, superior to the other created things. There's only one thing that tells us what makes us special. And that's in verses 26 and 27, where it says, Then God said, 
let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the reference to the image of God appears three times in two verses, and then in our likeness, for good measure, is also mentioned. Obviously, this is important, and this is the reason why we are different from everything else God created. Only mankind was created in God's image. Now, I, I've, I've taught a class called Beasts of the Field for many years, which is one of the reasons why I like to go to this text. We are created physically like a beast of the field, like any other animal. In fact, physically, we're not very impressive. I mean, when you think about it, a cheetah can run 55 miles an hour. I mean, I'm lucky if I can get 30 seconds at about eight. And then I have to walk it off. There are osp ospreys up in the sky. I've, I've seen an osprey up so high in the sky, it looked like a dot in the sky. And it has eyes so good, it can see a fish under the water and swoops down at more than 100 miles an hour and scoops up that fish. I can't even see you without these glasses. <laughs> I mean, ants can carry 40 times its own weight. No creature on Earth can even carry probably twice my own weight. <clears throat> Other animals are faster, stronger. They can see better. They can smell better. In fact, we probably wouldn't have survived this long. We probably would have gone extinct if not for the fact that we're created in God's image. It is the only thing that separates us from the animal kingdom. And therefore, that is distinctive of who we are and what our purpose for existence is. We are to walk out a life that represents the image and likeness of our God. And as long as we do that, we will live a life that distinguishes us from everything else God created. That will mark us as special. We're not special because of who we are. We're special because of who he is. And because we have the mark of our God in us, we're special. Nothing in and of ourselves is special or better than, than the cow that grazes in the field. But put God's image in us and look at what happens. That's what we need to remember. We are special. We are important. But it's only because of God. So then what happens if we reject that image? What happens if we reject the God who made us in his likeness? What happens is we start to behave more like a beast of the field. We start to act a lot more like these animals. That is what we see throughout the scriptures. That's what we see in real life. And we even use terminology to describe it. You know, that man's an animal, he's a beast. When he's what? Acting very ungodly. To just give a simple example right here from the very text we're reading, God tells Adam and Eve to rule the earth, to exercise dominion, to subdue. And we are supposed to exercise dominion 
over the entire earth, all the creatures and everything that God has made. Now, what we do, because a couple chapters later, sin enters the world, what we end up doing is we see dominion and we think it means domination. And we start lording it over. Not only the other creatures, but also each other. And if there's one thing I can thank God for, it's that he doesn't treat me the way we treat each other sometimes. And so a lot of people think that we're supposed to be dominating and controlling to make everything happen exactly the way we think it should happen. But in fact, that's not the way God made us, and it's not our purpose. We are not supposed to rule over each other and press each other under our thumbs. And that includes the male-female relationship. The Bible never tells a man to rule a woman. It never tells a husband to rule a wife. Nowhere in the scripture. The only one place where people try to get it is from Genesis 3. Only problem is that's the curse. That's not the blessing. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's the curse of sin. That is hardly the place you want to go for a principle to live by. But people do. And, and a lot of people that do, they don't intend to domineer or control their wives. A lot of godly men genuinely believe that's what the scripture teaches. But the problem is most men aren't godly. And we all are inherently sinful. We're all born in a state of sin as a result of that sin in the garden and inherit that curse that causes us to act not like the image of God, but like the beasts of the field. And that's why everyone must be born again. We must be re re redeemed from that curse that comes from sin. And we must be redeemed from the curse that comes from the original sin. Our own sins get redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and when he returns, he's going to redeem us from everything. But we have to live like those who are redeemed and like, not like those who are not redeemed. They become like a beast of the field. And when people start lording it over one another, start telling them, you, you know, my way or the highway, you do this or else, start using fear and intimidation and brute strength to control other people. This is why it's a male-female thing that has to be brought up because men are inherently stronger than women. That is why he rules over her and not the other way around. That's why you can't turn on the news and not hear a story about a man taking unfair advantage over a woman who's now in trouble getting sued or getting arrested for it rather than the other way around. Because we, we domineer and we dominate because we can, not because we should. And that's why it is more incumbent upon men to understand what it looks like to manifest the image of God in a relationship. If we don't, 
we end up like the beasts of the field. Now, how do the beasts of the field operate? Well, all the males fight each other, and the strongest one rules the herd. Now, God didn't give us ram's horns, so, so I don't think that's how we're supposed to behave. I don't think that we're supposed to go into the boxing rink or the, or the mud wrestling hole in order to determine who's going to mate with all the females. But that's how a lot of men act. I'm strong enough to make this happen, so I'm gonna. And that's why we have a lot of the crimes committed in, in this country that we have. It's people acting like beasts who refuse to act like the image of God. And it happens because they've severed themselves from the life that is in God that causes them to walk in his image. We must walk in the image of God. And the way that that happens is very simple. We have to acknowledge God in our lives. We must recognize that he is the source of our life. We must submit to this God and allow him to direct us throughout our daily lives. It is one thing to confess Jesus as Lord. It is another thing to be his disciple. When Jesus selected his 12 disciples, he had them walk with him everywhere he went for his entire ministry. They never were apart from him one day of his career. Every place Jesus went, they went. Now, I know that we're all, especially being Pentecostals and Charismatics, we're, we're really big on, I want God to be with me, I want to make sure God is with me and that he's never going to leave me, and we're all encouraged by those verses that tell us that he will never leave us or forsake us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the... That's wonderful news, but that's not really the problem. It's good to have that promise. God's faithful. He's going to be with us. The real issue is, will we be with him? See, Jesus was going to go where he was going to go. It was up to the disciples to follow him. They could at any time choose not to. They had to make that decision, and they followed him. And we have the same decision to make because we are called to be his disciples. The 12 are representative of all believers. We're all disciples. And Jesus said, if anybody wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. Now, take up the cross is just a term that refers to dying. Just to make it simple. In other words... Nothing else in this life can get in the way of following him. If you're willing to take up your cross to follow him, then you'll do anything else, because nothing else is that severe. That's the simple point. And if you renounce Jesus at any point along the way, it's not going to be good news for you at the end of the story. He makes it quite clear, this is in the same passage when he's telling his disciples this, that if you, know, if, you, if you are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you in the day of judgment. So it's a lifelong commitment. It's not like, well, I said the prayer. Yeah, but then you kind of said that you didn't know him later. What about that? See, Peter repented of that. Jesus restored him. But it's a lifelong daily commitment. So the real question is, will you be with him? This is how we live a life that's 
manifesting the image of God, that we daily walk in him. Now, that doesn't mean that we spend 24-7 in prayer, because prayer is just one manifestation of being with Jesus. But that is what it's all about. It's not by accident, by the way, in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus calls his 12 disciples, he prayed all night and found out from God who his disciples would be. He named them, and they began to follow him. And in verse 14, when it says that these disciples would be his 12 special closest ones, the first thing, when the purpose of selecting these 12 is given, the first thing that is said, it is that they would be with him. After that, that they're going to preach and heal and cast out demons. That comes later. But the first thing is to be with him. Because there won't be any healing or casting out of demons if you haven't been with him. You won't have any power or authority to be successful in, in those other things. It begins by being with him. So they followed him the rest of the days of their lives. Not just the rest of Jesus' life, but after he ascended to heaven, they continued to follow him in the same manner that we are to today. That means that everything we do is with him in mind, as unto the Lord, as Paul puts it. So we don't have to always be talking to God. We can be with him when we wash the dishes, when we go to work, when we shop because he's in our minds. He, we retain him in our thoughts. There was one uh, missionary, famous missionary, who uh, read a, uh, a book written hundreds of years ago about practicing the presence of Jesus, practicing the presence of God. And the idea was to think about God, just retain a thought about God in your mind at all times or you know, you know, throughout your day. And this missionary said he said he was going to try to do that. So I'm going to take one hour, and I want to think about God just one time a minute for one hour. And it didn't last five minutes. I mean, it's, he didn't he didn't realize how how much we live without retaining God in our thoughts. So he did over and over and over again for weeks. He couldn't do it. It was five, six, 10, 15 minutes, and then and he, would, he would blow it. Eventually, he learned how to do it. And he was able to do all things. And God never be far from him in the process. I know sometimes we get focused and we're doing what we're doing. We're not supposed to you know, have a God thought every 60 seconds. There's no law or anything in the Bible saying that, but it's a principle we're talking about, that we generally live our lives always with God in mind. People who met Smith Wigglesworth would tell you that it was very difficult to maintain a conversation with him. Because right in the middle of, 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 of talking, he will stop and start praying. I mean, Wigglesworth was, was once asked, um, you know, how, how long do you pray? Do you pray for over an hour? Or, I mean, how long do you pray when you pray? And he says, I, I, I never pray for more than 30 minutes. And he says, but I never go more than 30 minutes without praying. Now, can you imagine a person living a life like that? I mean, I've, I've known people that were like that. Our cats could be like that, boy. 
he'll start, he'll break out in a prayer while you're in mid-sentence with him. Because he felt like something was needed, like God needed to do something. I've known people like that. I think David Young E. Cho is, is, is that kind of a person. He wanted to pray for three hours before he started his day. So he had to get up at three in the morning to do that. And that was his daily habit. He ended up pastor of the largest church in the world. I think Dr. Brown was with him once in Toronto, if I remember correctly, at a large international gathering of believers. And he sat in a box next to Dr. Cho. And, and at the end of it, he, he marveled that he prayed through the whole thing. I was like, he never stopped praying. He was like praying in tongues almost consistently throughout the entire meeting. I knew somebody that actually uh, went to one of the meetings of Dr. Cho in South Korea in his church on a Sunday morning. And uh, they don't allow recordings inside, but uh, this, this guy was uh, a special uh, friend and they allowed him to video and actually saw the video of the inside of the church while they're having service. And when they, when they tell the people to pray, here's the need, pray about it, the place erupts so loud you have to turn the volume down and it does not let up. And it will not let up. They, they have to ring a bell to stop them from praying. There, there's something about a connection and a, and a presence of God that exceeds what we are familiar with. That, that's an encouragement for us. We haven't arrived. We haven't been perfected yet. And we can, we can be in his presence more. We, we're not going to be in the image of God by trying. We're only going to be what God created us to be if he lives it out through us. And that only comes by being with him. And this is the beginning point of the purpose of our existence. We are, as we behold him, as in a mirror, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We are transformed into his image by beholding him by spending time in his presence. This is the direct opposite of the world that we live in, which has systematically removed God from our daily lives. And the, uh, under the guise of separation of church and state, it has become virtually illegal to do almost anything as a Christian in America. Because they want to say that you're, you're forcing your religion on us. So you can't pray in schools and yada, yada, yada. So now we have shootings in schools instead. But when you remove God from the picture, not only do you begin to live like a beast of the field, but you actually lose your purpose for existing. Because this is the reason we were created. I wanted to make the title of, of my message today, Why Are We Here? Why are we here? Because if we don't know why we're here, then how do we know how we should live? 
What guidance, what direction do we have? So people who don't know God lack guidance. They lack direction, they lack purpose. It's not by coincidence that in the ancient world, all the people of the world had a circular view of history. That is, they didn't believe that history was going anywhere. It just repeats itself. Oh, is it springtime now? Look at all the trees turning green and the flowers are blossoming. And guess what? Eventually they'll fall off and die and next spring they'll start again and then it'll happen again. And it all just repeats itself. One generation lives and nourishes itself and goes on and reproduces and, and another generation replaces it and it just repeats itself. And that was the world's view of history for thousands of years. There is no purpose, there is no direction, there is no goal. Just live, survive long enough to find and reproduce others that will take your place so you don't go extinct. I would suggest for your consideration that there is a better way to live than that. But if you don't know God, there isn't. And this, uh, people who don't know God actually admit this. And, and some of you are probably familiar with some of the uh, quotations I'll, I'll just give, which I forgot to bring my notes with me. I had them written down, but Luke was kind enough to print me off a copy. So to give uh, an example, Bertrand Russell, an atheist philosopher and author of the 19th century, he, he became aware of, you know, the fact that the sun is going to burn out someday and destroy the earth and everything that we have lived for is going to come to nothing. So here's his philosophy. The whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitations henceforth be safely be. Oh boy, let's follow this guy. Hey, come on, unyielding despair. Boy, that's a, what a philosophy. And he can call it a firm foundation, but I'm not so sure how, how firm that is. It's not just despair, but it won't go away. It won't give up. But that's the only conclusion you can draw if you have no God. That's, he's right if God doesn't exist. Stephen Jay Gould, 20th century scientific evolutionist, gives us his philosophy, and, and this is not really science, this is philosophy at work. We are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Lucky us. <laughs> because the earth never froze entirely during an earth age. Beat the odds. Because the small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exist. We just got lucky. Evolution just happened to produce us. This is why evolution theory is, is often referred to as random chance. It's, it's by random chance that we are where we are because there is no higher force that is guiding the process. It just so happens that we got here. Stephen Hawking, name you're probably familiar with, 
wanted to develop a theory of everything. Not a very ambitious person. Just wants a theory of everything. He says, a complete, consistent, unified theory is only the first step. Our goal is a complete understanding of the events around us and of our own existence. He wrote that in a brief history of time book he, write, he wrote in the 1980s. So he wants to understand everything around us. He wants to understand our own existence. So when asked the question, why does the universe exist? His answer is, I don't know an operational way to give the question or the answer, if there is one, a meaning. But it bothers me. Well, it should. It, it should bother anyone if we don't know why the universe exists. If you don't know why the universe exists, then you don't know why anything in it exists, including us. And if you don't know why we exist, then you don't know what our purpose is. And when he says, if there is one, he's implying that maybe there is no purpose. We end up with a purposeless life. This is what a godless existence can offer us. Unyielding despair, no purpose, no direction. We might as well go back to a, a circular view of history. The only people in the ancient world whose view of history was not circular were the people of God. They had a linear view of history because they had a God who said, I put you here for a purpose, and I've got a destiny for you, and I'm going to fulfill it. And what we have today is pretty much the same picture. You either believe in God and you have purpose and direction or you deny the existence of God, believe we got here by chance and we're just going over in circles and just repeating the same thing over and over again. And maybe that's one of the problems. Maybe we've been over-influenced by this godless world because we don't realize that some of the things they teach come from godlessness and are not biblical. And we just live a life where it's like, well, I just want to have a good job where I can make enough money to pay the bills and live a decent life. And hopefully after I die, I can leave some to my children so that they can have a, a beginning point where they can survive, pay the bills, and just send it to their... Is this how we're supposed to live? Just survive? Just perpetuate our existence? Or do we have a purpose? And I want to tell you today that God created you for a purpose. He created mankind for a purpose, but he's created each one of you for a purpose as well. Individually, he has a special purpose for every one of us. And I want you guys to let that sink down. I want you young people to hear this. God knows you. He says you're important to him. And he has a purpose for your life. Don't ever let anybody tell you that's not true. Don't let them do it. If somebody tells you otherwise, you tell them, I'm sorry, but that's not correct. I have a purpose for my life given to me by my God. And I'm going to fulfill that purpose. You might say, well, I don't know what my purpose is. Well, that's actually a good thing. If you knew, you'd probably go out and try to do it yourself. And human though we are, we would probably fail miserably. <laughs> God's being smart when he gives us little bits at a time. He'd, he would rather we not know the details of our calling and purpose specifically. 
so that, number one, he can be in control of the process. Number two, so that we will give him the credit for it. But also, something we don't often consider, because he wants us to enjoy it. If we already know what's going to happen, it takes a lot of the joy away. I mean, a Masters is going on. I don't know how many people here follow golf, but if you already know who's going to win, how much fun is it going to be to watch? Found that out when I was in Bible college and we, we were, you know, we missed the game, the Super Bowl, because we had to be in church that night, but they recorded the game on a VHS. Uh, tell us how old I am. We're sitting in a room getting ready for the, them to play the recording of the game, and some kid walks in and says, oh, you're going to watch the game? The Giants won. Well, you know, that was, that was an exciting game, but far less exciting when you already know how it's going to end. God likes to not tell us, you know, for example, who you're going to marry, for those of you who are not married yet. He wants you to discover it, and it's much more enjoyable and much more exciting that way. The same thing goes for your calling. You say, exciting, man, I'm nervous, I'm scared, I'm in trepidation, I, I'm going to pay the rent next month, I want to know what, what I'm going what to do, what, what kind of job I'm going to get. Well, the nervousness and the fear and apprehension can be replaced by faith, replaced by trust in the Lord. Does he love you? Does he care about you? Is he going to provide you with your needs? So you don't need to know what's going to happen to remove the fear. You actually just need faith instead. And if you have the knowledge, then you won't need the faith, and now you're in a worse shape than you ever could have been I'd much rather not have my needs met and have faith in God than have my needs met and no faith. So God knows what he's doing. When you pray and you pray and you pray and all you hear are crickets, he knows what he's doing. He wants you to follow him. Not follow your calling, not follow your ambition, not follow in your father's footsteps. If God wants you to follow in your father's footsteps, then if you follow him, you will. But he wants you to follow him. And everything else will work out. So God has a plan for your life. And what we have to do is commit ourselves to the God who has a plan, not to the plan. I think it'd be good we just stand right now or else I might start going in all kinds of tangents because <laughs> I, I, I can do that. I'd love to have a week just to just go on for and chase every, every rabbit trail there is. But I want everybody here to consider who is God to me? Is God somebody that people I know talk about, but I don't know him? Is God somebody that I know about and maybe interact with on a few occasions, but I've never entered a real relationship with him? Or is God somebody that you have entered a relationship with but you haven't spoken in a while. Or maybe just not often, and it's, very, it's a shallow relationship. It's not very deep. 
Is God somebody I believe in, whose word I believe? And when I need him, I call on him, but otherwise I think I got this figured out. I'm going to do things my way and ask God to bless it. Or is God the one on whom I entrust my life? Is God one I can trust to the degree that if he doesn't come through, I die? And if he doesn't come through, I might as well die because there's nothing in this world that is worth living for. So I want us to consider where am I in my relationship with God and to just make one simple confession between you and the Lord. Say, Father, I want to deepen that relationship. I want to get to know you better. I want to behold you. I want to be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. This will take a lifetime, but that's okay because this is why I was created. And if you're willing to make that confession to God, he will take you up on that. He will take you on a journey and your life will never be the same again. I'd like to ask for elders to come forward who will be willing to pray with anybody. If you want to deepen your relationship with God, no matter where on the journey you are, people will pray with you, will help you to take the next step and to begin walking out on a daily basis a life of a love relationship with God, a life of faith and of trust. And as a result, it'll become a, an exciting life, one that has hope, that gives you direction and purpose, and a God who will fulfill it. So Father, I thank you for everybody here, and I ask you to speak to hearts, and I ask you to Provoke the response in each one that you want. In Jesus' name. Please come forward if you would like prayer.